I uh, became a serious baseball fan really at age, about age 27 is when I started to get pretty into it. When I moved back to Chicago from living in Europe and Canada for about five years, and these were tough years in American history, actually. This was the time of the Vietnam War. The, our country was really uh, having serious issues. Those were tough times. And when I moved back to Chicago, I really had this sense that I wanted to feel connected with the roots of America. I wanted, I wanted to feel uh, enthusiastic about America in some way. And so one of the things I got into was baseball. I had played baseball as a kid, but it just seemed to me, you know, this really is America. You know, you go out to the ball game and you sing the Star Spangled Banner and you cheer and, you know, and act silly and care what happens. And so uh, that's when I really became a Cubs fan, when I was about 27. I had dabbled as a Cubs fan, but I got to be serious about it. And when Diane and I got married, I asked her if she would vow to be a Cubs fan too. <laughs> and she said yes. What a great thing. How fortunate. God, I don't know what would happen if she'd said no. You could get a ticket for the bleachers at Wrigley Field for $5. And it was a $5 bleacher ticket. Um, so it became part of my life. I, I, I don't know exactly how that happened, but, but it became part of my life. And so uh, that's, that's part of who I am. And, and it, like I said, it's been a good week. I have not... Uh, I'm not the longest standing Cubs fan. I mean, there are people who've been Cubs fans for a hundred years or, you know, generations of their family and they've waited so long. I feel kind of like a newbie. Um, an example of that kind of person is right here in our congregation. Uh, one of our uh, UU kids named Penny, uh, who's the daughter of uh, Will and Mary sitting over here, Penny was watching all this and uh, being excited about the Cubs, and she, at the age of five, exclaimed to her parents, I've been waiting for this my whole life. <laughs> See, that's a lifelong commitment. So that's how I became a Cubs fan. Today, now that they've won it all, I look around and, and to tell you the truth, once more, I really feel worried about our country. I have that same kind of feeling that I did back in those difficult days that I, I'm worried about whether we're on the right track or not. Or, you know, is this, a healthy, is this a healthy democracy that we have? And I don't think I'm probably the only person who's having this in some sense of anxiety about what's going on here. In two days, we, the American people, will vote to make a momentous decision about where our country is going. And as you all know and can figure out easily, depending upon who wins that election, especially the presidency and the Senate, 
our country could take off in very different directions. Very different. And either way it goes, we are very likely going to be a deeply divided country because that's who we are at the moment. There will be angry and disillusioned citizens either way. There will be upset either way this goes. There may be protests in the streets. There may be some violence at polling places. I hope it is not true. Those who pray, pray for peace on Tuesday. We're in rough waters, and the storm is not going to end when the votes are counted. It's going to be there with us for a while. As many people have remarked, there's been a surreal quality to this election cycle. It's certainly the strangest, most bitter, and least civil election I have ever witnessed. Things are being said that are not remotely close to being true. And although many people protest this lack of truth, many people don't protest it at all. The very idea of truth actually seems to have slipped through the cracks of American consciousness. We're not really dedicated to the truth during this period of our history. Leonard Pitts gave a lecture on this at Bradley about three or four years ago from the point of view of a national journalist. We have a kind of meanness that has been unleashed at a level that is really shocking. It's, I haven't seen it in my life. Maybe the shock value is part of why we don't know what to do about it, this loss of truth. We have at least one foreign country who's probably somehow involved in our election, and at least one government agency that has the appearance at least of taking sides in the election. There's a level of insult and threat and personal attack that doesn't bode well for the future of our country. It doesn't point the way down a good path for us. And both sides, many people on both sides, see the other as totally unacceptable. Totally unacceptable. And much of the public sees both presidential candidates as equally flawed. Although I must say to me that doesn't seem evident at all. That's not my truth. But it is a truth of many people in our country. There's a level of distortion, mendacity, manipulation, misogyny, racism, character assassination, and just plain vulgarity in this election that feels kind of like a nightmare. It's as if we've lost our mental balance as a culture. We're off track. And I think we're all struggling to try to understand what's going on and, and what can be done to heal our, our nation. How can we regain some equilibrium? When I found out that the choir was going to sing Jabberwocky this morning, first of all, that's a great arrangement. But in that poem, we enter a surrealistic world, 
But it's a world of high drama, life and death drama going on. But in this world, words do not mean anything. Or we don't know what they mean. It's a world where there isn't any clear speech. There's what Lewis Carroll calls burbling. There are words that don't have any meaning that we know of, or maybe there's an implied meaning, and different people take that different ways. So it's a, it's a strange, surrealistic world, but nevertheless, it's a world in which there is real danger that has to be faced, even in that surreal context. So in this setting, where there's this lack of clarity, a young boy has to confront deadly serious threats. We don't even understand the details of the monster. We don't understand ordinary meanings at all in this. But we do know that there are monsters there. And they are serious. And the boy is going to have to confront them even in a world that doesn't make sense. Interestingly enough, in the poem, the hero first spends some time in thought. He sits under, or actually stands is the truth, he stands under the tum-tum tree and he thinks. And there's a kind of meditative quality about that. And the choir is going, ah, back and forth like that. This actually is a classic aspect of hero stories in the world, that the hero goes and meditates before the big event. So he gathers himself, gathers his strength, the resources for the struggle ahead. And then the Jabberwock appears, a frightening monster that threatens all life around it. The monster comes forth burbling and showing eyes of flame. Who would not fear such a monster? And yet our hero, refreshed by his time under the tree, dispatches the monster with a blade of some sort of unknown material. Because we don't know what that is either. And the monster falls dead. Oh, frabjous day, kalu kale. So, who or what is the Jabberwock? Don't yell it out. <laughs> if you have an idea. The identity of the monster is tantalizingly unspecified. This is because this is an archetypal story. It's a universal story. The Jabberwock could be any monster. And the story doesn't tell us who it is, because that would be too small a story. The Jabberwock is any monster that we might feel in our lives. I'll give you a couple of possibilities. Well, it could be one of the presidential candidates. 
Let's say it could be Donald Trump, just for the heck of it. I won't ask you to show your hands, but I bet some of you have had that thought already. But in our surreal and polarized world, it could be Hillary Clinton, too. Because in our world, both of the candidates are viewed as monsters by some of the people. Good chunks of people. They're viewed as really horrible monsters. This is a one-size-fits-all monster. It could be... It could be a problem in our lives. It could be alcoholism. It could be racism or sexism or it could be our inner anger. It could be any internal or external challenge that we have. We get to think about the monster in that way if we want to. That's what a universal story does. It allows you to project your own reality onto the elements of the story. I'm not saying that there isn't any right or wrong in these different situations. Not at all. I'm just saying that these kinds of stories can be interpreted in many ways. And this partially explains why in our culture we could have neighbors, friends, and family that see the world through unbelievably different lenses. Shockingly different lenses. That's part of our reality. Because a jabberwock is not anything specific, it could be anyone or anything, according to our view of reality. In baseball, which usually explains everything, (laughs) what was that? All right, I'll start that over. In baseball, (laughs) if we particularly love a team, we think of that team as the good guys. And then we think of the other team on some level as the bad guys. I mean, this is just, this is how this little mythological structure works. And of course, the other fans see it in exactly the opposite way. But in a baseball game, if we are more or less mentally healthy, we know that this isn't really true. We know that. We know that the fans of the Cleveland Indians are just as good people as we are. If we have, you know, mental perspective. We know that, even though we're playing this game. As a matter of fact, I want to give a shout out for the Cardinal fans who have been so gracious, at least to me, I don't know about to everybody, have been so gracious recently in being happy for us. That's very generous. But in our country right now, we don't have that underlying feeling that the other people are okay. We're not in that space. That's a big problem for us. That does not lead to a thriving culture. It leads to trouble. It really has become a toxic, malignant environment. We are not a people with common purpose 
at this time in our history. I'm not saying we can't recover that. I'm just saying that's not where we are at the moment. So we're on a difficult journey in a surreal world, a world where things don't make sense and the traditions are not being followed and there's a lot of bad blood and it's not even clear what the meaning of things are. There's no, common, there's no basis for common discourse because we don't even agree about what the words mean. So how do we talk to each other in such a world? Where do we go from here in that kind of world? What works in a baseball game and in many other arenas of life is to have a set of rules and agreements that everybody agrees to abide by. In our church, we have a covenant. We say, this is the way we are going to treat each other. In a ball game or any other kind of game, there are rules and you have to play within the rules and everybody agrees what those rules are. And then you don't, you don't argue about that or if you do, you know you probably won't get very far with it. And we have these people called umpires or referees who keep the rules and make sure the game is fair for everyone and everybody gets an equal chance and it's all ethical, it's all on the up and up. And you really have to respect those rules or you really can't have a game. And then you lose all the fun of being in the game. You lose all the joy that this process can bring you if you don't agree to have that much sense of mutual respect and trust and fairness. You have to have that to have the game work. Just last Sunday, we voted in our church to install a solar energy uh, system and we did it according to our bylaws and constitution. We had a vote. Nobody asked for a recount. <laughs> and nobody seemed to think that we had any problem doing that. Because really, we trust each other on that. We trust each other to make a motion and to have discussion and then take a vote and count the votes. And we have faith in that. What a great thing we have there. We didn't have any insults. We didn't have any voting fraud, at least I don't think so. And now we respect that outcome and we are all convinced. And it seems perfectly obvious that we have decided to go solar. What a great thing that we can do that. And we felt good afterwards. People told me, boy, that really felt good that we did that. That really feels like a good thing. You know, if we could only feel that good after this Tuesday, that would really be an enormous triumph. Where are the rules of democracy and civility that we need to reconnect with this, this underlying goodwill that we're so in need of at this time? We could start with the sanctity of the vote, I think, how the vote belongs to everyone. That no one can morally keep anybody who's a citizen from voting. That This has to be just rock bottom solid for us. You know, that people get to vote. And we want people to vote. We have one of the lowest voting rates of any democracy in the world. We should be, it's around maybe 60% is maybe the high 
It should be 80 or 90%. There should be millions and millions of people voting. We should make that our, our goal. We have to revive this ancient idea of truth. We have to have that. That we, at the very minimum, try to speak the truth. To name what is actually happening at, at any given time. Now, in our time, the idea of truth has been replaced by the idea of spin. And the art of politics has become the art of spin. And when this election is all over, in about a month, I will tell you in private if you want to know who I think the absolute best spin doctor in the world is, but at the moment it's not the moment to say. But some people are extraordinarily good at this. Just absolutely. And it is not about truth. Truth is not the goal. It really isn't. It's not the goal. So we have lost this idea of truth. And we hear talking that sometimes sounds to me like just the nonsense that we heard in the poem. Just doesn't mean anything related to truth. But it has an effect. And the effects can be measured. You can even tell what the dollar effect is of certain kinds of spin. Not a good place for us to be. How about respect for each individual? How about that? How about calling a foul for language that's blatantly misogynist or racist or homophobic? How about two minutes in the penalty box every time somebody does that? How about saying that that's not the way we live and work in our world? How about just saying that? Let's, let's put that in the rule books, that we don't treat each other that way. There's plenty of room to disagree. Disagreement is not the problem. It's these other factors. How about common civility? Is that something we could recover? Do we want to live in a land where civility no longer matters? Is that where we want to be? I don't want to live in that kind of place. How about following the long-standing protocols and traditions of the institutions of government that forbid using government entities for partisan warfare? How about not using government entities to make partisan war? How about not refusing to approve judges, which, by the way, both parties have done. How about not threatening to sh shut down the government? How about saying that's a foul? You can't threaten to shut down the government. That's not a healthy process. Figure out some other way to make your argument. How about not using any agency of the government for partisan? Because all these people, you know, they swear an oath to do the people's business, to do our business. So how about having those kinds of traditional understandings that you don't do things like that, that have now, many of them, fallen by the wayside? No society can remain healthy without a sense of basic decency that is honored more and valued more than partisan gain. There has to be a place where we honor basic 
decency more than we want partisan gain. If, if we don't have that, see, we're in a lot of trouble. We're in a lot of trouble. We can't talk, we can't make decisions. <clears throat> Although both major parties have fallen short at times, at any given moment, it is pretty easy to figure out who's doing what. Even though both parties have fallen short, it doesn't mean that at every moment everybody is equally bad. That's a, that's a fallacy. We can see what's going on at different moments, and we can discern what kind of games are being played. It is not true that in every circumstance, both parties or both candidates are equally bad. This has become another spin thing. It's a media spin, actually. And they feel stuck in it. They can't figure out how they're going to get out of that one because that's become the standard media spin. They did it, they're doing it, and they're doing it. Now cut to a commercial. So we're going to election on Tuesday. I want to lift up this idea of a functioning democracy. I want us to have that. I want to live in that. I don't want to live in the way we're doing it right now. It doesn't feel right to me. Is there hope for this wonderful but deeply flawed country? Of course there's hope. This is a, this is a creative, resourceful, intelligent, diverse, valuable culture. There's so much going on in this country that is wonderful. But we are going to have to defend our way of life, I think. And so, on the eve of this election, I ask you, please go forth and vote. Don't ever pass by that opportunity. Bring your grandmother. Bring your uncle. Bring your neighbor. We need people to vote. It's the fundamental action of a democratic people is to vote. Please do not give up hope. Please do not give up hope. Please do not accept unacceptable behavior. We should not accept that which is unacceptable. Please let us not give up on our ideals of freedom and equality and justice. Let's never give up on those things. Let us not let fear or despair overwhelm our souls. They're going to be monsters. That's part of the universal truth of that silly little poem is that there are monsters in the world. And they're not the same all the time, but we have to have courage. We have to, we have to confront things as they are. We have to call a team meeting or a congregational meeting or sit under the tum-tum tree or meditate or whatever we need to do and then be ready to go out into the world with a sense of truth, a sense of reality, with a set of ethical principles that we're going to stick to even if it's not convenient for us to stick to them. Because that's what's going to allow us to have a country together. Otherwise, there's no game. You have to call off the game. Is there hope? 
My friends, if the Cubs can win the World Series in the seventh inning, in the seventh game, in the seventh inning, after giving up a three-run lead and being behind three games to one and confronting the monster that they never win, which turned out not to be true, if that can happen, then there's hope. That means that anything can happen in the world. There's nothing that can't happen now, for any monster can be overcome. Our country can live out its ideals. That can happen. And next year can be right now.